Kia katoa and welcome to episode 32 of 76 Small Rooms. We've got a full complement of everyone here today. Me, Arch, Matt, Jeremy and 2024 Minister of Housing, Tash Markham. Glad that you could join us today. We're recording in quick fire straight after uh, the last one from which I was sadly absent. Thick in live US election results and you'll all be listening now knowing what that outcome is. And I pity you for knowing that. And everything, everything we say is going to feel incredibly trivial, trivial against whatever outcome that election delivers. I know, but um, it's really good to have the whole band together and we're trying to up our content before Christmas. And we're not afraid of triviality. We're not afraid of triviality. Um, thought it would be good to kick off because I've got here a brand spanking copy of um, I Never Met a Straight Line I Didn't Like, which is the follow-up book to Down the Long Driveway. Full disclosure, this is made by my brother-in-law. I do not receive a commission. Hashtag not an ad. Hashtag an ad. Um, <laughs> but it's really lovely and it's full of another kind of coterie of these wonderful um, mid-century um, 60s designed houses uh, in Christchurch. Um, drawings, photographs. Mary Godin did the photography and it's, we were talking about it Tash before, that in a way she almost photographs inhabitation as much as she photographs architecture. The way some of these are framed and shot, there's things hanging on walls, cropped images of, of, of all of the things that populate a house and make it kind of lived in. And they're really quite intimate kind of pictures, I thought. Um, I wonder what you, I wonder what the rest of the team think. I think intimate is, is exactly the right word. And it, it's funny, um, uh, we were having a brief conversation before about that um, difference between the documentation of a building, showing what is, showing the architecture and, and capturing the sense of a building, which is really about light and those small details and those vignettes of, of a, uh, an architectural element that might be seen through the leaves of trees and... and you or know, reflections, like loads exactly. of these are, are reflected images that, that create mm. this double exposure effect, which is really lovely. And they're really powerful. I mean, they're absolutely every bit architectural photographs, and yet they're not. They are doing something other as well. They're, they're quite beautiful sort of stories in their own right. Yeah, I kind of... I feel so romantic and nostalgic about these kind of houses because... I know a lot of them are still built by people who are relatively affluent, but there's also an inherent modesty about almost all of them in terms mm -hmm. of the amount of space that they occupy and... The palette um, of materials is often very restrained. Yeah, I mean, yeah. just about what's sufficient for kind of a sense of comfort and um, human occupation. And I was talking to actually, um, earlier today, I was talking to Sam Alworthy from Auckland University Press, who's childhood home is in this book oh, yeah. and he said it's really interesting thinking about that house now um, because he thinks about how small it was for their family in comparison to what people's expectations would be now like you know the 120 square meters of homes of this era is the now 250, 250 yeah. of mm. this era where people just that's what people consider sufficient mm. space and I think it is therefore a little bit of a kind of chart of where part of our kind of housing market's gone completely off the rails. It's not the whole thing, but it's certainly yeah. part of it. And that um, so much more is invested in housing now or our expectations of what constitutes a house now are inflated. But we also yeah. have massive homelessness and housing shortage problems. And it, yeah, it just feels like we've drifted so far away. And this book um, is a reminder of 
how far of the kind of integrity that we've drifted away from to some degree. Yeah, it's easy to romanticize it. Like, you know, I know you talk a lot, Jeremy, about this idea of building and buying houses for the future, the future buyer. Mm. And so they're all scaled for their resale. Future occupant. Future oh, occupant. Oh, yeah, sorry, right. buyer is the bad, the sickness. And it's easy to look back on this and go, these were actually just built for the occupation of the people who commissioned them. Now, oh, I don't yeah. know the real backstories, and I don't know the, I don't know the level of um, affluence or otherwise of the people who commissioned them. But you do, you do really, really easily look back and go, these were scaled for the occupants for that use, that family that time yeah and that might not even be true i, I don't, don't think know. they predate super commodified housing in yeah. a sense yeah. yeah which i think has really changed things and perhaps put more of an emphasis on quantity rather than quality because all of these houses also feel very crafted in mm. terms of the the detail the way that things go together um and i guess that does sort of also imbue a certain sense of personalization um within the actual buildings themselves as well as actually the stuff within the houses we were talking about drawings before and I think that same sense of craft is probably they feel crafted because they were designed and put together by craftspeople. You know, mm. that, um, the craft of drawing that, that's synonymous with, uh, with these homes, you can, you can see why those drawings and the way the drawings feel is similar to the way the homes feel. Mm. But it's very spatially dynamic too and I think that's another thing that's missing from a lot of commodified housing now because you know to do a skillion um, ceiling which is for those people who aren't architectural and arch involved in architecture you know where you have uh, a ceiling line that follows the roof pitch that's an expensive thing any mass home builder will say oh no we will do a flat ceiling inside and we won't um, expose those um, that structure and that volume and so you can actually have a much smaller footprint if you have um, a space that is doing different things with inside rather mm. than just being very uniform mm. so actually, i'm just reading some of the text for one of these houses this is the uh, g stephen house by bevan hunt and associates so peter bevan and um, there's a description here that maybe reveals what the occupant was like. The client was called Jill Stephen. Jill, flushed from a post-war entrepreneurial winning streak, was planning an early retirement and fancied the life of an English squire, lord of the manor, roaming the grounds, fishing idly from the stream, and generally being refined and leisurely. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's not mass housing, that's thrifty, is it? I'm also amazed actually, or reminded of the kind of remarkable aesthetic consistency across a whole bunch of different architects. Yeah, um, there's a lot Furry of... Furry tiles, white block, totally. Maranti or similar kind of dark mm. timber, match lining ceilings. Yeah. It's all, many of them are made of a very restrained cut of parts, right? And I guess there was a uh, um, less wide range of mm. products that you could Perhaps. use. Perhaps. Yeah. I don't yeah. know that for sure. Possibly, yeah, possibly through necessity and, and supply, right? Mm. But also that perhaps was, dare I say, not a trend, but you know, a kind of a, a, um, a greed a way of doing yes. things yeah, at yeah, the yeah. time. Which well, it seems like the consensus was quite settled in a funny way, right? Totally. Yeah. But we're also seeing a, perhaps a narrow viewpoint as well of what true, was true. being provided. And I would say that you get that throughout any time in architectural history. Yeah, like lots of the songs that come out at the same time mm. sound the same and you can't tell how... That you can't tell the mm. similarity or the distinction from other eras until mm. later. What's also interesting is that most of the houses in the book are kind of 40 years old-ish and very few of them have been altered or needed, seemed like they needed to be altered. And I liked the kind of implied longevity 
of them where kitchens aren't being changed every 10 years and yeah. thrown into landfill and that kind of thing as well. There seems to be a quality about them that endures. Either that or the ones that were altered didn't make it into the book. Yeah, yeah. there's many to which that happened that, um, yeah. that haven't kind of made it. Um, but look, it's a beautiful book. You can get it at straightlinebook.nz and it's really lovely and it's a bit big for a stocking, but you know, you can make a big stocking. Um, and it got us talking and thinking about childhood homes, mm. which was another thing we thought might be nice to kind of touch on because we've all, uh, just before we started recording, just were hinting at some of these experiences and how they might have been formative or how they might have revealed what space and architecture can kind of be to us. Yeah, I mean, and I, I'm always sort of curious about did I choose architecture or did architecture, you know, choose, choose me? me in yeah, a I way? I like the thug life. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but you know that. Well, did I have? Did I have? I have very strong memories of certain. Um, Stop <laughs> laughing at your own joke. <laughs> Oh, it's so good to be back. I've got two podcasts worth of my own jokes to catch up on. Oh, great. We can't wait. Christmas special, please. <laughs> but do, do you know? Do you have really strong memories, architectural memories from when you were a child? I know I do. What about you, Matt? I do. I, um, we talked about this a little bit. I, I remember less so my homes, um, but I remember my classroom being incredibly big and tall and big south light windows and i went back there a few years ago um to my old school it was tiny yeah <laughs> um but it was still i you know i do i remember that i remember the even light in that space yeah. is something that stuck with me um i remember when i was about nine my parents built a house and i remember that being i remember the process from and I, there's probably key reason why I became an architect but I remember the process of looking at plans and it was a it was a signature home when signature home were kind of competing in the Lockwood um what we recognize as Lockwood now um standardized plans that you modified and you mm. changed but I, and I remember the process of going um of talking around why that plan was being changed the standard plan was being modified for us and then the spatial experience of it, of it being built and living, living in it. And under, I remember connecting the two. Um, and that I think that's probably fairly influential why I took up architecture. Hmm. Or why it chose me. Hmm. <laughs> what about you, Art? Well, I just recently tweeted about our family farm going on the market again. And that's kind of prompted some of this, some, some ribbing from uh, Jeremy that I grew up in this weird palatial opulence. Child of privilege. And it <laughs> certainly didn't keep that it. quiet. It certainly didn't feel that way, but looking at it shot now and glossy and beautiful and regal, you know, I can kind of see that. But but to kind of come back to that, this was a, a Heathcote Helmore designed house built in 1926 in North Canterbury. And my grandparents bought that farm and house in 1953. Uh, my dad took it on in the 70s. I was born in 75 and we all lived there till 2001. So 1953 to 2001. So when you talk about architecture choosing you or influencing you, I think for me there were two things. One was the concept of like permanent occupation was really, really strong to me. The idea that my, my schoolmates and things were moving house was completely alien to me. This was a house that my, my grandparents had started in and I was still going in. And I think that 
that sort of, I've always had this sort of deep, deep, deep attachment to that single place and that made me think a lot about how a building was doing that to me. And then the second one was the building itself. It's an amazing, amazing building and, and setting. And it was pretty much unaltered from my childhood up until when I was in high school. And it always struck me as a building that, it was my first experience of a building that I, I, under, I started to understand that it was definitely trying to do something and say something. And it always felt like a spa spaces and a building that was speaking very clearly about what it was doing, and that every other house I went into was mumbling. So I, I knew it had a composition and an order and a symmetry and a deliberateness that other houses didn't have. And you just, that whole thing about permanent occupation and just marinating in that setting constantly, thinking about it, starting to draw it as a, you know, when you're in a very remote location and you're learning to draw, it's really hard drawing landscape. It is really so hard. There's not many straight lines around. No. Most of the straight lines are in the house. Mm. I draw the house. And you, you understand things through drawing them. So for me it was um, it was a long process and it was a, but I was definitely very strongly influenced by the idea of a building that can sit somewhere and say something and, and stand out and be different. And the other house we, we talked about briefly before was my aunt and uncle's house in Pleasant Point, which I don't know who designed it, and I might, we'll, we'll post it up if I can remember. But it was remarkable, and it was very 70s, and it couldn't be more different to the Heathcote Helmore house of 19, the, the Castle of Privilege, as Jeremy will call it. <laughs> and it was wacky, and it was dark timber, it was diagonals, and it was all very Peter Bevany and Roger Walkery. It had quite pitched ceilings, lots of volumes, and diagonals, and it had a spatial complexity mm. that I didn't realise that's what it was at the time. But looking back, you're like, oh yeah, like you'd come around the corner and you get this shot view like 45 metres through a hallway to a window at the end, and then you come into a space where the ceiling raked up and there was a mezzanine and it was just exciting yeah. and I think that was a really early experience of um, how space can make you feel yeah. and go this place is exciting I yeah. feel something yeah. in this space as opposed to the cellular kind of things or things like quality of light or quality of material mm. this this was spatially exciting mm. it was really dynamic and cool and you know you were always playing around the house and seeing one another and playing hide and seek, seek mm. and things it was great for that because there were all these axes and views and things yeah. I mean I think there's something wonderful about those sort of 70s uh, early 80s homes that do have a spatial dynamic or 60s homes that and they do, as a child, make you want to kind of clamber around them and yeah. explore, and, mm. and you feel like you're given license to do yeah. so, rather than mm. perhaps in a, you know, the more restrained, older homes that require a certain kind of behaviour, or certainly I remember that's what I read from, you know, that's older homes as a child, um, but visiting or, you know, in fact I grew up in... Um, uh, Initially, my early years are kind of, um, I think it was built in the you know, mid-70s or early 70s townhouse that my parents had. And it was on something like four different split levels. And, wow. and it was um, on a steep site. And so there was this real sort of feeling that you could explore it and run around it. And there were, I, it was a different spatial quality to each yeah. of the... It reminds me of reading Under the Mountain, Morris G's book as a kid, mm. and how um, Rachel and Theo 
lived in a split level home beside Lake Pupuki and I remember reading that and just like that sounds like glamour. Split <laughs> level? Yeah, <laughs> split level. I was fascinated by that idea. I, I've just heard, had word from my correspondent that my cousin's, my aunt and uncle's house in Pleasant Point was designed by Barry Bracefield hmm. who is not, that's not a name familiar to me. No, my sorry. aunt says she's not sure if it was a qualified architect but I will be furiously googling um, <laughs> yeah, at the conclusion of this. So we are in the process of, well we've sold our house we're um, looking for a new one um, but of course this is the house that our kids um, it's their childhood home so mm. 10 year old and 6 year old and it's split level so um, you would like it i.e. glamorous yeah, <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> um, by a lake well, and, it, it's, and it's got sark ceilings and it's um, and um, skillion sark ceilings and it, those are some of the things that made it stand out to us when we bought it and little things like the split levels when I'm talking to my now 10 and 6 year old and um, if I kneel on the steps and they stand at the top we're eye to eye yeah. so that's always been the case when they've been living there is that we're able to talk eye to eye and you know that's where they're giving a cuddle in the morning that sort of thing so um, I'll dub some strings over this there, yeah. <laughs> so, but I'm kind of really conscious as we then go buy another house that it kind of needs to have that those same opportunities in it hmm. um, because there's an awful lot of houses out there that don't have those spatial moments hmm. there's, um, I've said this more than once in the last few weeks but it's an incredible waste of perfectly good construction materials out there because there's so much blandness hmm. um, no, not only are there not enough houses, most of them are shit yeah, yeah, yeah it must yeah. be depressing to have yeah, well, yeah, yeah. So um, I'm sort of really conscious as they go into their, um, you know, they'll be living there in their teenage years, um, finding somewhere which is... Um, we can hide a bottle of jam. <laughs> uh, where there's a, a window, a bedroom right. window you can Sneak climb in through, and yeah. that, all, uh, all of that good stuff for a teenage life. Yeah, so, but man, it's hard. So, I mean, it's lovely having, a, you know, looking at this book and looking at the little windows and things which... Um, those moments are, are built in. Yeah, it's um, good to get an architect. Okay, so good. Yeah, they are. Like what about it. you, Jeremy? Early memories. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because the houses I grew up in were pretty unspectacular. Dad taught at small rural schools too, so we were living in a kind of a basic 40s house and a basic yep. 60s house, neither of which were exciting. But um, the first place we lived, which is a place called Ardkeen near Wairoa, and I remember when I was maybe six, John Scott's Uruweta Visitor Centre opened and Dad was sort of moonlighting for the White Or Star as a reporter as well as being a teacher and so we went up there kind of around the opening time and I remember the journey into that building. Yeah. We went there often so I don't know if I'm remembering the opening specifically or many of the visits we made but um, McCann's um, painting sitting in the foyer and also that was a bit like what you were talking about Tash, this encouraging exploration you know big circular windows you could look out and um, different levels and it was a real journey through that building um, which now of course doesn't exist sadly um, but so there was that and mum and dad were kind of even though we didn't have architecture in our wider family I guess we'd go to Wellington and they'd be like oh that's our house by Ian Athfield he's an architect and that's mm. one by Roger Walker so we were kind of conscious of it and they had this yeah. friend called Rayford Gardner, who I think is still practicing as an architect in Hastings, and I vividly remember going to their place, which was quite a simple, 
concrete block house, but it went in and the ceiling popped and it had a mezzanine floor mm. with a piano on it, which seemed incredibly sort of exotic. Wow. And, mm. and also I remember the laundry and the bathroom were in the same space, which I'd never sort of seen before. I was mm. like, oh, what is this? Why are they in the same time? Why did they combine that? She said, oh, it's sufficient to use space for, you know, multifunctions and things. And there was also a house... So then we moved further south in Hawke's Bay to a place called Kennedy, and there were two John Scott houses near us, um, which were just so distinctive compared to the regular farmhouses yeah. that were around us. Um, and so I guess he was a big kind of continuing factor in this, like, what is this, why is this house, or well, this building feel so different to everything else that I know? Um, and I think those things sort of sparked the interest in some senses, or even just sparked the conversations with parents and other people about why this building feels or looks different and mm. Mm. how has this happened you know because everything else is sort of boring and standard and you're like the same <laughs> when you're looking for a house and all but it's not true because that's the real that's the main question eh? <clears throat> especially when you're younger like that and you haven't you've got the vocabulary you've got the experience whatever it's that kind of like why why does this feel different you talked about mm. formality and play and i always remember as a kid going when my parents would take us to church and the the church said be quiet yeah. behave mm. be um, I don't know be worshipful whatever all of the things that mm. religious spaces are very very effective at saying mm. <clears throat> and I remember all of us you know the moment we got out the door after the service we'd all scream and it was almost like you knew you'd been just almost dismissed from class and that was that build it was the people and their actions and their rituals but they became associated with the building mm. so that even when a service wasn't on you, that's the test. The service wasn't on. You'd come in and you'd be quiet. And yeah, and you and you'd get outside. Um, and it's a really formative. It's a, it's a language that everybody can read. They, mm -hmm. even if they're not they're not aware of it, it's something that you read with your senses. And I think that's you know why the book is really interesting as well because it's all of those things that aren't obvious but collectively architecture speaks to all of us. Mm. You know, and um, and children I think are are really good at picking yeah, up on that because they operate in a very sensory way. We often learn as adults to dull our senses and our intuition mm. and all of those other things that are pretty strong in most sort of, you know, under eights. Um, and, yeah, I, th I think you're absolutely right. Churches, those sorts of buildings, they are designed to quash or quell yeah. Well, kids are sort of the best architecture critics, I think. Oh, totally. Because they're not worried about what surface the kitchen bench top's made of. Yeah. Oh. Any dull practicalities like that. They're just like, does this feel good or does it not? And yeah. how do I behave, like you are saying? And they're, they're the best people to ask about it. Yeah. So don't take them to open homes. Oh, really? This could be my room! I love this room! Yeah, okay, plan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't look too keen. And springing from kids to, I think, the contrasting topic of minimalism. Which is what we said we were going to talk about. <laughs> and this is, what you, this is what you wanted to talk about, Jeremy, when we suggested it. You even had some homework, which I must confess I was remiss in, um, in, in not reading. Yeah, to start but, from well, a column yeah, Alexander Lang wrote a thing in yeah. Curves, um, which was talking about clutter that was accumulating because people were at home during All COVID the time. with kids. And she also had this interesting reference to, I think it was a Life magazine article from the 60s where it talked about the storage wall and had this sort of harried mother, of course, with clutter and knowing she could kind of hide it all away. Um, and I was also thinking about the richness of these mid-century homes in this book and how that's kind of 
the confidence of that has disappeared a little bit and this pursuit of minimalism has kind of been corrupted in a sense because some of that some of the exciting minimalism I just love that monastic feeling but it also came down to the richness of the materials and the effort that had been put into kind of pairing everything back mm -hmm. and I don't think that's a that equates to an all-white kitchen with jibboard walls and little design care nowadays yeah. it isn't the same feeling but people still aspire towards it and um, I've just been thinking about that as a subject and also people have been talking about the kind of um, impossibility of minimalism and the kind of cruelty of it because of that as aspiring to it as a way to live when it's entirely unrealistic so it might be good to define it yes yeah. like some of the things How you're talking you about it, yeah some of the things yeah. you're talking about I immediately go you're talking about stuff and things which are needed in all houses versus um, I don't know a quality of space or a, or a spareness of space or a simplicity of space they're kind of quite different things so I'm sort of talking about John Paulson yeah, he always comes up in these conversations. And actually. I think you mentioned materiality, which I think is a kind of fundamental part of pure minimalism, the kind of minimalism I think of architecturally, because it is about that kind of repairing things right back to the essence so that you can almost focus in an almost meditative way on the quality of the materials, the way things come together, or perhaps, and I think a lot of John Paulson's work the view that has been framed up or curated yeah. from the space. Yep. The spaces are very, very quiet, but and they're often, say, in, thinking of as homes in kind of rural, coastal areas. And so that idea that, you know, there's no art on the walls because the outside is the yep. art and that is this changing canvas yep. and the quietness of the interior allows you to focus on Focuses it. the view like a lens almost totally. more intently. Yeah. yeah, and so everything's a kind of a soft foil for that. I mean, that's my reading because I think so I, I don't have a lot of you know, I haven't had a lot of experience in minimalist spaces and mm. I'm actually quite cluttery myself I like I like a bit, I like rooms and spaces to be scaffolds on which I hang all my crap mm. that I kind of like having around me but um, I can't hear it no right? <laughs> but it's very what the crap I think I just after talking about it I was getting <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were oh. still looking a bit antsy there <laughs> yeah, actually wiping the table like, but there's also like you can't talk about minimalism today as opposed to 50 years ago 70s or 80s minimalism without considering it in its kind of Instagrammable aspirational oh, guilt laden aspect like every image I see of a really minimalist space I have this overriding feeling of like how guilty I feel about living in a cluttered space <laughs> and I don't think I'm alone because it's sort of that I, I just I, I just have such a, a feeling that they're aspirational images it's um, become a bit style police right it's hard for me to see how they're lived in and we were talking to earlier just about the way the, 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 the book is photographed about inhabitation mm. and the spaces, many of the spaces are quite minimalist, they use a very small palette of materials and some of them are spatially extremely simple but they're lightened by you know that, that piece of um, driftwood that hangs on the wall and the, the soap and the sink and the toothbrush and the bottle and, and those things add colour and they make it, for me, they make it really relatable and I'm like, I can tell something not just about the space but how the space is used. Um, the aspirational image based, you know, scroll, scroll, scroll minimalism I'm talking about, there's so many newsletters and things like that that give you this palette of images. Mm. Um, they feel almost the opposite of that lived yeah. in. You're like, I can't, 
I can only understand one dimension of the space. I can't understand understand how a life is lived in it, how an idea is had in it, how I a novel is written in it. Couldn't put my teacup down, you know. Yeah. Or actually allow my children. Do you have that? Is that relatable? Oh, it's relatable, but I kind of I still find myself. I feel better in spaces that are completely pared back. Because I think because I grew up with in a cluttered house. Right. Um, and my mum collected a lot of stuff, a lot of it was really charming, but yep. it also sometimes felt like the bookshelf was about to fall off the wall and kill us all, um, because there was so much shit in it. So you feel Sorry, more at peace, you, um, feel po- you feel just calmer and better in a, in, a, in a really clean, tidy, uncluttered space. Yeah, and so we kind of have that at home, but it's interesting because people come... At, um, I think I said this on the group chat the other day. There's a, a friend of ours who stays, but also sometimes uses our place if he's in Auckland, we're away. And he's just like, I can't have sex in your house, it's far too uptight. <laughs> <laughs> so, minimalism is prophylactic. <laughs> For him, it seems to be the case. Yeah. But um, I do like the calm that comes with it. And I think, in a slightly, it brings a sense of order to stuff that otherwise. I wonder if I'm almost the opposite. Really? Yeah. Or do you feel comfortable? I don't know if our house was cluttered, but definitely a, um, the, the pressure about not having a lot of stuff lying around. And now I'm like, quite like leaving a little bit of stuff lying around now. It's funny that yeah. these, these photos being taken well after the building's finished. And, and one of the things I, I used to work um, for Gordon Moller, and um, Sylvia Moller used to always say, You guys take, always take your photos too soon. Yeah, you've got to wait yeah. for the landscape mm. to settle in, you've got to wait yes. for people to live there. Mm. Now these these are photos of buildings which have been lived so in well before. established now. Yeah, yeah. and the, you know pictures of handrails in here where you can see where the hands moved over mm. the handrail. Yeah, you know, that's brilliant. You, you don't um, you don't get um, photos of um, deer antlers um, on your fireplace um, when you're taking it, you know, out of the box. Mm. You know, um, so it's and I uh, I wonder how minimalist homes actually is, uh, get lived in. You know, um, there's stuff that builds up. There's a picture in here of, of a um, little shelf with some a collection of toy elephants that's sort of sitting on there. And that stuff must uh, isn't staged, I wouldn't have thought. It's just accumulated in a way that the people who live there think is beautiful. Um, and it must. It, I think it takes a long time for um, for that to to generate into the build up. I love the idea of taking the photos too soon because I, I was talking about this in the office today <clears throat> how well established the houses are and there's you know the way the greenery is so well well bedded in mm. and frames all of the views and Mary's used it to frame a lot of the views and it's, it's very much like the way we often make idealized architectural <coughs> imagery yeah. with really established foliage and, and there's, there's a real attempt to integrate it and make the two things kind of speak but when the building's initially finished you know, those trees oh. are 10 years old when you go in and there's a spindliness mm. and there's a real dominance of all the built hardline stuff and mm. that's that's absolutely bedded in here and these things are, that creates all these wonderful views, peeking round things and all of that. Mm. What about, um, what about minimalism and kids? I remember the first <laughs> really quite swanky house I did as a little baby architect um, in St Helia's was beautifully crisp and clean, you know, just little negative details separating the surfaces. Most things were flush. And they had a young family, and I was kind of like, I wonder how this is... What happens when they get the crayons out? Everything was white. And it was like, where will everything go? And I've always wondered what... Um, I've always wondered how they lived in that house, which was... Um, Actually, you know, your way, it was uptight in many ways, right? 
Um, I don't know. What do you reckon? Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's what I thought. I, right? I think. I mean, if, if minimalism, minimalism is at one end of the spectrum, children are at the, opposite the polar end. opposite. <laughs> I mean. You know, even if you have wonderful aspirations about your children having lovely wooden toys and the perfect thing, I, I, my experience anyway of children is they like the, you know... The box that came in? And, <laughs> and the most sort of gauche, gaudy, bright-coloured plastic stuff. And they're maximalists. Mm. And yeah. actually, once you sort of get used to that, it's actually kind of cool because they're, they're taking in everything and they're kind of prolific in their outputs um, and so I'm, I don't well I cannot see how you can live yeah. minimalist lifestyle what, Fro- what, yeah. what would Freud say about minimalism eh? like because it's interesting that you, I love that I, I love that comment that like kids are maximalists mm. yeah. and, and just sens- like drinking in senses and reflecting them all back and you're totally. like minimalism is, an, is, a, is some you could argue that minimalism is like the suppression of all of those things with a noble gain that by kind of dialing it all down 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 you do things like focus on views or you you know you calm the mind let a certain focus but it's also like man would it kill you to have a bit of colour no (laughs) exactly (laughs) or a bit of texture or a bit of a bendy wall Mm. here all of those things that we know when we experience them you're like oh that moment really cuts through that's quite that's quite lovely the excitement we were talking about before well totally and I mean I always think minimalism as being the ultimate edit right you know and, and creativity is kind of to a balance between production and edit at the end of the day that's sort of how you get something to my mind and so kids are at that just everything 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 and minimalism you we're pairing it back to the the absolutely yeah. barest essentials yeah. and you've got to be very very rigorous and um uh disciplined i think with your edit no not that yeah no less yeah. materials you know yeah. just mm. refine 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 i was thinking about this related to john paulson because he put a book out recently which features this kind of cottage slash series of rural buildings that he's done for himself mm. as a kind of weekend getaway. And it's kind of interesting because the restoration goes to relax. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> this is my thing. And I didn't like it very much because although it's very thoughtful and, you know, the rafters are exposed and there's these beautiful kind of cut um, windows or doors into this stone facade that you can see out into, you know, Arcadia and that kind of stuff, um, there'll be rooms with a single kind of you know, a sizal mat and a Judd daybed and a sort of footstool or something. And actually they don't, I didn't love that, even though I thought I would. I just thought it's kind of, um, it was almost a really sort of obtuse denial of the richness of the building itself. And that it almost felt to me like a lack of confidence in terms of introducing some colour and just a sense of comfort. It almost felt, Mm. the interiors almost feel hostile, which I don't think is what minimalism really should be about. But it is for him, I guess. But well, it's yeah. always interesting too. I find I would always want art on walls. Yeah. You know, and and there is in John Pawson's um, buildings, you quite rarely see it or see it, or that it's not in the photographs at least. No, that's right. Um, and and so the absence of any sense of personalisation whatsoever, and I think that I personally like. That element. I like the images in this book because you can see a sense of who inhabits these mm. spaces, and I think that's rather nice. Mm. Also, these spa- the in this book, 
the houses hold stuff really nicely, quite elegantly, yeah. which is a really interesting proposition because I think minimalism in, in the wrong hands has gone to the point where there kind of isn't anywhere to put anything. Yeah. And so it is literally impossible because you don't have I, John I mean, Paulson-esque storage to throw everything into and pretend you don't have stuff. I mean, the, the, the kind of strong pro-argument is that is the monastic simple monk life aspect of it that mm. it is all the things that are the problem and he's literally done monasteries of course he's, he's, yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> and that, that, the, 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 the lack of distraction of all of those things and, and, and the spatial simplicity leads towards like a um, this is what my experience of, of um, my first experience of Ando's buildings and a lot mm. of the temples in Japan when I lived yeah. there that there's a um even silence is kind of stronger in those spaces yes. and there is an idea of focusing and sharpening the senses in it. I just don't know if I want to live in it. I love visiting, no. I love having moments in it. I don't know if I'd want to live in it. They feel quite elemental though. You know. In a good way. Yeah, no, no, yeah. I, I agree and, and I, I think that they, you know, like in Japan they operate really well at that sort of the tea house or the shrine or, or whatever. But my experience, I stayed with, only for a week, but um, with a Japanese family and that the Japanese house was not like that no, no. at all. Yeah, that's it true. Was, it was there was plenty of stuff. Yeah, a yeah. few more instruments in the band. <laughs> yeah, As you're saying that, I was also thinking about how pervasive the influence has become in terms of people now in, you know, New Zealand domestic architecture sweating over the resin whites and neutrals colour <laughs> Whereas, you know, in the 70s, where our sort of farmer neighbours would do up their kitchen and it Avocado. would be bright brown floral wallpaper and orange yeah, benches yeah. and Karoma red toilets and, and the amazing like matching, and matching acrylic set of toilet, cistern, basin and bath. Oh, yeah. And you could get them in like burnt orange mm. and avocado and well, that was a telling me recently it's really hard to get coloured carpet now unless it's custom made. And like if you want something that's not beige or grey, you've got a really hard choice, uh, hard job because the choices are so limited. So it's kind of, minimalism's been, a, had a deadening effect in the wrong kind of ways, I think, in some sense. I don't think that And it's also about resale. I don't think yeah, I, I think, and I think Kiwis, the vast majority of homes, um, we don't design them specifically for the people who live there, we design them to move in and out of. Yeah. In resale, as you say, you know, there's a, um, there's a personalisation is not uh, taken. You know, it's yeah, something yeah. that people don't want to do, uh, and I think there's a, um, an element of fear in there. I think that hmm. of, if um, grey or beige carpet isn't because um, they're trying to aspire to be um, John Paulson, it's about um, it's a safe choice, so that yeah, they don't upset the next owner. Mm. Same with the avocado um, yeah. bathware set. <clears throat> I'd love to talk in another episode about the um, lack of colour theory uh, taught in architecture school. But that's a topic, I think, for another day. Could be a good one. Could be. Caboosia was a great colour. Right. Mm. Shall we wrap it up there? Let's go and fret over these bloody election results. Yeah, and everyone listening is listening to the post, you know, the post-election world. Thoughts and prayers. Optimistic. Who knows? Could be great. Could be. Who, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Well, thank you very much for listening. We'll post up a few pics, and we might, if we're really good, get another episode in before Christmas for this year. Sounds good. Matewa. Matewa. Bye. Bye.